Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Matthew um, chapter 16, verse 21, and we'll be reading that up to 17, verse 13. From the time on Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day will be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life and lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not test death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes 
and we restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what he was talking to them about John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. So this year, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday were the same day. This happens like a few times a century. And it happened this year that Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday were on the same day. There were lots of memes about this, of course, on the internets. And my favorite one uh, was this one of Barbie. Um, I saw someone post this meme saying something like, this is the energy I'm bringing to Valentine's Day this year when it overlaps with Ash Wednesday. This colorful, plastic, perky world of Barbie. And she's asking her friends, do you guys ever think about death? (laughs) To me, this collision of Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday kind of made me think about how as humans, we try so hard to avoid the reality of suffering and death. So hard. Humans, as a general rule, do not enjoy suffering. We tend to avoid it, yes? We expend a lot of energy trying to make painful things more bearable or attempting to escape pain altogether. When I start a new exercise regimen that I know is going to be difficult, I buy myself a new outfit to like lessen the pain of exercising. When I've had a hard day and I'm stressed out, I flip on Netflix and just kind of escape from whatever is stressing me. On Valentine's Day, we celebrate love, usually with movies and commercials and gifts that promote this sort of like youthful, often not terribly realistic version of love. And on Ash Wednesday, we hear the words, remember, you are dust and to dust you will return. While the world around us celebrates the young, the energetic, the strong, Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent invite us to sit with reality. We are all going to die. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about death or suffering. We don't like to think about our finiteness, our weaknesses as humans especially in a place like the United States where we have this ideal of success and productivity, this cultural myth of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Pain is not celebrated unless it leads to some kind of success that we deem worthy. Michael Jordan's suffering of being cut from his high school basketball team is only praiseworthy because he eventually became one of the best basketball players in history. A person's poverty is only celebrated if they somehow end up overcoming it and becoming a millionaire. In our world, suffering is not something we celebrate. Suffering is something to beat, to dominate, to overcome in order to achieve wealth and status and power. In our world, suffering is an obstacle in the way. And this shows up in our theology. We tend to interpret difficulty as God's punishment or absence. We feel like God's blessing is on us when things are going well, when we get the job, when we buy a new house, or we feel like there must be something wrong when things aren't going well, right? There are some churches that even teach that material prosperity is a sign of God's blessing. 
which can only mean that poverty is a sign of God's displeasure. When we have a difficult season, what do we usually pray? God, get me out of this quick. (laughs) We don't like suffering. We pray for healing, for money, for safety. In our world, we chase comfort and success. And so we've started to think that this is what God wants for us too. Now, praying for a new job, praying for healing, praying for safety are not in themselves bad things. But the question today's text challenges us to ask is this, what do we want most? God's kingdom or a comfortable life? What do we want most? When it comes right down to it, what is it we want? Do we really want God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Or do we want safety, comfort, worldly success? Last week, we talked about the passage. We talked about the passage where Peter confesses Jesus' identity. It's that phrase that we have people repeat here at Harbor when they get baptized. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter and the other disciples finally got it. They grasped who Jesus is. But as we read today's passage, we see that although they understood that Jesus was the Messiah, they still had a long way to go in understanding exactly what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. At the beginning of our passage, we read that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus has alluded in Matthew previously to the idea that he might suffer in maybe poetic or metaphorical language. He's hinted that there is suffering to come on his messianic mission. But here in Matthew 16, our passage today, it's the first time that Jesus just straight up tells his disciples he's going to die. He says here that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He's telling them something important. His death is necessary. It's not something to be avoided. It isn't something that just happened to him. His death on the cross was a necessary part of his mission on earth as the Messiah. Now, the disciples were not expecting this. Most people expected the Jewish Messiah to be a king like the great King David to throw off Israel's oppressors and reestablish an independent Jewish state. They expected a political leader, a warrior. So Peter here reacts in a pretty understandable way. No, Jesus, you can't die. You just confirmed you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die, Jesus. They conquer. I love Peter so much. (laughs) Peter really thinks he gets, he thinks he understands what Jesus is here to do. And he kind of fancies himself as Jesus, like campaign manager, right? No, 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 no. Jesus, don't say stuff like that. We've got to get everyone behind you so you can kick out Rome and people probably won't follow you if you keep saying you're going to die. So don't say that. (laughs) Peter thinks he's helping because Peter, like us, sees suffering as losing death as losing 
to Peter and the rest of the disciples, the trajectory of the Messiah was to be an ascent to worldly power and position, an accumulation of status and might and a following. Death was failure. And Peter was terrified of the idea that he was backing the wrong guy. He could not conceive of a world where death was success, where suffering was progress. And we're the same, right? We kind of hide from our vulnerability and embrace our strength. We avoid pain and run toward pleasure. We reject poverty and loss and losing. We desire healthy bodies, big bank accounts, and lines that go up and to the right. In our understanding of the world, that's how it is supposed to work. That is success. And if our life doesn't look like that, we are terrified that we're failing. When our kids make choices, break our hearts, when we struggle to make ends meet from month to month, when we're stuck in that same terrible job year after year after year, when the cancer isn't healed, when the pain doesn't go away, when we struggle in our minds, that's failure. But Jesus doesn't seem to agree. Far from it. In fact, Jesus says that suffering is expected for people who are living according to the kingdom of God. In the next verse, after what we just read, Peter kind of matches, or Jesus matches Peter's energy. When Peter was like, no, stop, Jesus. Peter kind of matches him. We read that Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whew. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Whew. This language here, get behind me, Satan, it's the same phrase Jesus used earlier in Matthew. In Matthew 4, verse 10, when Satan tempted Jesus to worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. He said, away from me, Satan. In Greek, it's the same thing. Away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Same thing. This strong rejection here of Peter's words is because Peter is essentially promoting the same thing that Satan was in Matthew 4. Kingdom without the cross. Power without the pain. And that's a strong temptation, even for Jesus. That's why he so strongly rejects it, right? Jesus did not want to suffer and die. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll get there. In our journey through Matthew, he asked God that if there's any other way, please take away the cross. If there's any other way. But Jesus knows that the cross is the only way to save humanity. The cross is the only way for Jesus to become the perfect atoning sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. See, Jesus sees things through God's eyes. Jesus has an eternal perspective. Peter can still only see what people see, human concerns, things like thrones and palaces and armies and national identity. But Jesus sees what concerns God's heart, the reconciliation of God and man, the restoration of true and lasting peace on earth. 
Jesus sees that what's at stake is worth the temporary pain and suffering of the cross. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that not only will he suffer, but that they should expect suffering too. In verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is telling his disciples that to be his follower means to choose the way of suffering. He's saying, listen, if your goal is to avoid pain, you should probably do something besides follow me. <laughs> and in this verse, he, he tells us two reasons we might suffer as we follow Jesus. First, Jesus says that to be a follower of his is to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Denying ourselves means that when we give our lives to Jesus, our first concern is no longer what we want, but what Jesus wants. To confess Jesus as Lord is to say that everything you have belongs to him, that your life is his, to do whatever he wants with it, to confess that because he is your king, he has the right to everything you own. Denying ourselves doesn't mean to just ignore ourselves and the desires of our hearts, but it means to notice when our desires are different than God's desires and to choose God's way instead of our own. That's a demonstration that Jesus is our king. And to deny ourselves is painful. It hurts to die to my selfish desires. So, we might encounter pain as we deny ourselves. Jesus says another reason we might encounter suffering is that to be a disciple means to take up a cross, to take up our cross. This is one of those phrases that I think we really have trouble understanding because we are so far removed from how this phrase would have hit its original hearers, right? We see the cross now as this beautiful symbol of Jesus' love for us, his power over death. Yes, there was suffering, but there was also glory and resurrection, but to the disciples, before Jesus was crucified, to take up a cross would have been a shocking statement. For them, a cross was a Roman instrument of terror. Death on a cross was reserved for people who rebelled against Rome. It was painful. It was horrifying. It was cruel on purpose. It was public on purpose. The message from Rome was clear. You stand up against Rome, that's what's going to happen to you. Crucifixion was intended to keep people in line. The cross was a terrifying tool of control. This is why uh, James Cone, in his powerful book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, talks about how probably the most similar thing in our country was the lynching of black men and women in the early 20th century. Lynchings were public. Black men and women were publicly beaten, abused, and hung from trees in the center of towns after the Civil War ended and all the way up through the Civil Rights era. It was a clear message from white people that this is what would happen to black men and women if they tried to assert their rights to be equal citizens in our country. Lynching, like crucifixion, was a tool to terrify people into being controlled. So Jesus' words here were like saying today, grab your lynching rope and follow me. It's shocking. And Jesus says the shocking thing to make a point. 
following Jesus and building God's kingdom will always put us at odds with the kingdoms of this world. It always will. The kingdoms of this world will come and go. Babylon, Rome, the United States. But they are all the same. At their core, the kingdoms of this world want their power and their empire, and they will stop at nothing to keep it. The kingdoms of this world are fundamentally opposed to the kingdom of God because life in God's kingdom requires acknowledging that there is only one king. And he is no mere human being. So followers of Jesus should expect to encounter suffering and pain as we build God's kingdom. When we seek to alleviate people's suffering as Jesus did, we may encounter a lack of safety or security. Helping those in need does not always make financial sense. Sometimes it requires us to live with less. This looks foolish to the world. Sometimes valuing the image of God in every human being means we refuse to align with a political system that routinely attempts to force us to choose who is worthy and who is not. Choosing to prioritize God's kingdom above building our own might mean we're passed over for promotion that we would get if we gave our whole life to our job. When we refuse to play the game of the kingdom of this world, it might mean we lose by the world's standards. But Jesus says we have to choose. We have to choose between the self-preservation of building our own kingdom and the risky, beautiful business of joining Jesus and building God's kingdom. But that's not all Jesus told the disciples. He wanted them to know that suffering in this world doesn't get the last word. Glory is coming that will make all the suffering worth it. He goes on to say, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Jesus says, listen, first of all, whatever you strive to build in this world, it's not going to last. When you die, you can't take your power with you. You can't take your status or your wealth with you when you die. So you will lose all the things this world says are important anyway. But if you give your life away, building God's kingdom, that's eternal. It lasts. And not only that, but God sees. God sees you. He sees how you sacrifice. He sees the way you give more than you can to help other people. He sees the way you're prioritizing your family and your service of others instead of just climbing a ladder of success. He sees the way you practice solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. He's watching all of it. And he has a reward for you that you can't lose. And then, as though he's emphasizing this, Jesus goes on to say that he's going to show some of his disciples a taste, a small taste of what this eternal glory with God in heaven will look like. 
So the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles did not exist in the original manuscripts. Okay. Those were added in later by editors. So what we read here as verse 28 of chapter 16, I think actually goes better with what's about to happen in chapter 17. So let's read that together. uh, So truly, I tell you, this says in verse 28, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, look, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love Peter. He's jumping into action again. (laughs) While he was still speaking, God interrupts him. Stop that. A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. So we call this the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration is what we call this experience where three of Jesus' disciples saw a glimpse of what Jesus looked like in heaven. His face was as bright as the sun. His clothes were glowing white. Moses and Elijah were hanging out, talking with him. The voice of God spoke from heaven. They heard it with their ears. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he invite these three disciples along for this experience? I think the whole experience was maybe for them. I think it was for their sake, a taste of the reality of what Jesus was teaching them a tiny glimpse into the beauty and reality of God's kingdom. In verse nine, we read, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. I think Jesus gave them this experience because he knew, he knew there would be a day when they would need the reminder of this reality. He knew that after he left, after he went back to heaven, there would be days when they would wonder if the struggle and the suffering were worth it. See, the language that we use commonly now about Jesus being the son of God, the language of telling the gospel, the good news, uh, this idea that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, all of that language is Christian language now. But in that day, it was not Christian language. That was actually language about Rome, language about Caesar and the peace on earth he brought through his conquering and his dominion. So to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, put these disciples squarely in the way of Rome. This is why so many of them were arrested and beaten and eventually killed because they were proclaiming Caesar's not king. Jesus is king. They refused to give allegiance to any king but Jesus. And Jesus knew this was going to be hard for them. He knew there would be days when the disciples would probably wonder if maybe they should just go back to being fishermen. (laughs) Get up, put out the nets, sell the fish, go home, rinse and repeat. But Jesus wanted them to have a picture to hold on to, this glimpse into the reality of this kingdom he'd been telling them about. And later in the Bible, in 2 Peter we see that this is exactly how it helped Peter. 
In second Peter, he's urging the church to hold fast in the midst of persecution. And this is what he says. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter wanted the early church to know and all the future church to know that the kingdom of God is a sure thing. It's real. Our destiny is eternal glory with God in the new heavens and the new earth. He wants us to know that any suffering we might encounter this side of the new heavens and earth will be considered infinitely worth it when we see the whole picture with our own eyes. It will be worth it. So the question for us in this season of Lent the days leading up to Good Friday and Easter, the question for us is how can we courageously choose the way of Jesus even when it leads to suffering? How can we, in this season where we consider the finiteness of our lives, how can we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? That very question is the reason that the church has for centuries practiced some spiritual disciplines during this time of Lent. We've practiced the discipline of self-examination, considering what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. The practice of giving, giving away what we have to die to ourselves. Fasting, denying ourselves pleasures during Lent. That's why the church has done this. During the season of Lent, we're invited to practice denying ourselves by fasting from something. By giving to others, we're invited to pay attention to our desires. As we said earlier, right? Denying ourselves and taking up a cross requires us to know who we are, to know what it is we're desiring, what it is we're running after, so that we can consciously choose God's way when it's different than our way. This might require us to pay attention to places in our lives where we are actively avoiding suffering on the back of your sermon outlines, I've provided an example of something called the daily examine. Uh, the daily examine is just a way of looking back over each day and asking God to help you reflect on that day. In this examine, um, we're particularly seeking to understand our relationship with pain and suffering. When we ask, you know, where in our day did we try to escape pain or suffering or even exhaustion? What did we turn to other than God? Can we sit with him in our discomfort instead of just running from it? We ask, where did we run after our own selfish desires? Our goal, right, is not just to seek out pain. That's not what Jesus is saying. But the goal is to get comfortable with the reality that life as a disciple of Jesus will come with suffering. It is painful to say no to our own desires in favor of God's desires. We might suffer as we say no to the kingdom of this world in favor of living by the design of God's kingdom. Maybe as you do this daily examine, you'll find that there's something that you often rely on to kind of escape pain. Something that maybe routinely feeds your selfish desires. 
That might be something to consider fasting from in some way during this season of Lent. It might lead you, this, you know, this daily examine might lead you to find a way that you can give to others as a practice of self-denial. As we approach the season of Good Friday and Easter, I also want to say that you might think about if baptism is the next step in your faith journey. Right? Baptism is how Christians publicly demonstrate their choice to do what Jesus challenged the disciples to do. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. Baptism is the ceremony by which we declare ourselves Jesus' disciples. So if you haven't been baptized, I want to invite you to think about it. We're going to have baptisms on Easter again. And if you're interested, please let me know. I would love to talk with you about it and get you ready. But for now, take these next few moments and consider how you might practice this Lent. How you might practice denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus during this season. Let's pray. Jesus, your love for us is astounding. The way you laid down your life, the way you gave up your home and glory to come and be with us is astounding. And we want to be like you. We want to strip ourselves of our privilege. We want to strip ourselves of our selfishness. And we want to be a self-sacrificing, a, a selfless person we want to lay down our desires in favor of God's desires, and that is hard. It's hard for us, and we need your help. And so, God, will you help us to hear your voice, not a voice shaming or judging us, but a voice inviting us into something better, to a better way of living, where we let go of the things we grasp so tightly in this world and run with our whole hearts after you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.